Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And today we're going to be talking about the evolution of the wine critic. And our guest is William Kelly, who is the reviewer for Burgundy Champagne, English Sparkling Wine, Madeira for and Madeira for the Wine Advocate. William, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining Peter and myself. Thanks very much for having me. I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of your background and how you got into wine and the different things you're doing today. Certainly, yeah. I mean, so I would describe myself as something of an accidental wine writer. So I've been very excited, very interested uh, in wine for a long time, since I was about 17 years old, started reading everything I could, joined a tasting group at Oxford when I was a student, ended up running it for three years. We were doing, you know, we were doing weekly tastings with top producers, things like Eric LaBelle from Krug came to the UK for the first time. We had Yves Gongloff with his three hectares of Condrieu came all the way to Oxford to do a tasting of, of old Condrieu and Magnums, things like that. I mean, incredible tastings. And I think a lot of other people at the time perceived that it was going to become my career, but I didn't. I thought I was going to become an academic and I was you know, writing my doctoral thesis, which I, which I did finally finish all 100,000 words, 1,000 footnotes of the damn thing. And I was sort of having a rather offhand discussion with one of the producers who had visited us, producer from California, in fact, for dinner after a tasting. He said, I sort of said, one day it would be interesting to make wine, rather casually like that. And he said, well, what, when you come and do the harvest? So I did. 2015, moved to California. My wife's American, so I was able to get a green card and all that sort of thing. Worked the harvest. And with a view to wine production, now, in fact, since 2017, I make Chenin Blanc in California. Since 2018, I make a bit of Chambal, some other wines in Burgundy. So that remains very much an animating aspect of my interest in wine. But around the same time, you know, I knew we had mutual friends with the editor of Decanter and whatnot, and put in contact. And I, I pitched a piece to Decanter, which sort of accidentally pitched a piece to decanter over lunch and it was accepted and then they published it and so quite rapidly that escalated to being their North America editor and then reviewing Burgundy for them. And then a few years after that, I got a, got a call, the wine advocates, I can really say I fell on my feet in that regard because after sort of two years in the wilderness making no money, suddenly I got one of the best jobs in, in the wine industry from my point of view, certainly. I have no complaints. So yeah, that's a brief, uh, brief resume of a brief career. So when you go into wine writing, is your original thought more on journalism, critic, or writing books? Like, I mean, being an academic, I would assume writing a book is potentially one of the things. Usually people don't do all three. They usually choose one or two of them. Oh, no. I mean, I think I wouldn't consider myself a writer per se. You know, I mean, I have those, I think I have those skills thanks to my background, academic background. And it comes free if you want to write a thousand word article about wine. If you're in the habit of writing a hundred thousand word theses, then it's it's pretty easy. You, know, you don't even have to include any footnotes. It's great. <laughs> so no, but a book is absolutely on, on the cards. And I really want, I'm working, researching for a book on Burgundy, which I hope will be a new perspective rather than with no ambitions to be an encyclopedia, you know, because a lot of books on Burgundy written by encyclopedists, the sort of information for me is better put in, in the internet. I mean, we really need to have a sort of discussion about what content deserves to be in a book. And, and to me, it's heuristics. It's things that will help people understand a region, will have enduring value and therefore merit to be, to be published in a book where they won't become obsolete after 10 years. So I'm, yeah, I have quite an ambitious book in, on Burgundy in, in mind and in progress, I would say, but I don't know, it'll probably be another couple of years. 
I think I have some of those books on my bookshelf that are, you know, like yeah, a thousand pages heavy. long with, yeah, they vintage like, reports. I find, and, I find my wife's using them to prop open the door or, you know, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so they're quite useful in, my, in that respect. My fiance but, uses but, them to put her computer higher up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. So yeah. they do have their uses, but it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> So as Robert mentioned, we'd love to focus this interview on the evolving role of the wine critic. Being a critic for the wine advocate, which are reviewers, as you call them, which was most made most famous by Robert Parker, is probably the quintessential type of wine critic. In your view, how do you think the role of the wine critic is evolving? Well, it's a very interesting question. You know, I mean, I think certainly Parker remains in a lot of respects the, the first. I think you can say that all wine critics, basically, people who review wines for a living are, in a sense, his intellectual children in some respect, and often many of them today have actually worked at the Wine Advocate or been influenced by, by his publication. But the world has changed immensely since he began. I mean, I would point to two things, really. The first is a sort of explosion of the scale of the wine world. When he started the Wine Advocate in 1978, it was actually conceivable to review pretty much any wine of interest that you could find for retail in the United States if you were prepared to taste, as he did, 10,000 wines a year. That's no longer possible, clearly. You know, so we we are much more aware of what's going on in all over the wine world, and a lot more of those wines are brought to the United States and, and globally. You know, they're brought to to markets all over the world. The other huge change, I think, is the explosion of value of what we call inverted commas fine wine beyond any kind of level of inflation or anything like that. I mean, the notion now of on an average professional salary being able to drink occasionally or even regularly first growth Bordeaux or Grand Cru Burgundy is just risible now. And so those two things, I think, have had a huge impact on wine criticism. And I think the wine advocate still aspires to be pretty comprehensive in terms of covering seriously all the major regions of the world that necessitated now a team of 10 to 12 people. I mean, we're so many, I can't even remember how many we are. And then the idea of having sort of polymath levels of expertise in all the wine regions of the world is obviously not plausible. So I'm, I'm highly focused. I, I would say I have other interests in, in other regions that are relatively, which I push quite a, quite a long way, but I mean, I don't write about them and I remain professionally very focused on just essentially champagne and burgundy. 99% of, of what I do is that. And then the price of wine, you know, I think that's created a real problem for contemporary wine writing, clearly, because Parker, when he started out, was actually buying all of the wines. Obviously, if you want to do 10,000 wines a year, uh, you need an awful lot of subscribers to buy all of the wines, <laughs> and it's, it's just not really practical, but, but it should at least be possible. And I'm lucky to have one of, one of the relatively well-remunerated jobs in wine writing, and I mean, I buy some DRC every year, I buy some Costuri, I buy some, some serious wines, some expensive wines, and I think it's important to retain a consumer perspective. And what we have with wine writing today is either if you re retain a consumer perspective, you write about inexpensive wines. Or if you want to write about very expensive wine, it's very difficult to not find yourself, because you're dependent for samples and whatnot on the producers, occupying more of a sort of trade and, and producer perspective. Now, as someone who makes wine and someone who buys a lot of wine, I try to be able to see both sides of, of the hill, but we remain, as a publication, very consumer-focused in that sense and, and try to pay all of our own expenses. And we do pay all of our expenses. And, yeah, but I think that's going to, for very practical reasons, increasingly rare in, in this ecosystem. And it, it is a problem. I guess, yeah, I guess if you were dependent on the producers, then you couldn't sort of make them angrier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a delicate, I mean, I write critically about domains that don't, in many cases, have 
the habit of being criticized. I think the more expensive your wine is, the higher standard you need to be held to. But to the perspective of a producer, it doesn't always seem fair. And I remember, it's definitely been a learning process. I remember one time I was I commented on a, on a top producer's blog on Blanc and said, you know, this is great wine. Does it, is it really worth a three-digit price tag. And they pointed out I hadn't said the same about the Bog and Blanc from Koch, Bog and Rouge from Rumier, and so on, which all have three-digit price tags. I mean, why are you singling us out? So you have to be very careful to be even-handed and to really be, to be also, I think, just listening to people. And I had that conversation with them and I learned from it. And one can't sort of be too dogmatic and pronounce ex-cathedra and then get irritable when people are not happy. I try to see both sides of the most points of view, anyway, at least. You mentioned earlier that you have more of a focus on certain regions. Do you see a difference in wine critics or reviewers who are focused on specific regions versus ones who are more general and just wine in general? Yeah, and this goes back to your last question. This is another huge innovation is to have people writing about the wines based in the regions. I mean, you have, in, just in the wine advocates, many of our reviewers actually live at least half the year and sometimes the whole year in the regions that they write about, pocketed everything from Maryland with short visits throughout the year to all, all over the world. And I think that's still the model. Everything for the wine spectators tasted in offices, whether it's in, in Napa or in, in New York. So that's a huge thing, is, and I think it's, and it's got to be the future. But what people want, I mean, at least my perception of what people want, and I hope I'm right, is people want to get deeper and deeper into what makes great wines great, what makes wine special. And that it implies not just enough to live in Burgundy and then go and visit the producers. You have to actually go to the vineyards. You have to know where the parcels are and you have to show people how the wines are made and then really understand that process. It's not just sort of lifestyle, decorative purposes living in the region. It should be a meaningful and very deep engagement. And I think that's the future of the niche of wine writing that I occupy. It's that sort of going deeper and deeper into the, into the details. So all publications are in service of their readership or viewership. And places like Decanter, where I used to work, and Wine Spectator, both do wine criticism and lifestyle content. I'm curious, how do you see the critical element of those publications differing from that of Wine Advocate? And, and do you feel like the consumers are looking for the lifestyle component or maybe targeting different demographics? I mean, I certainly feel very happy just writing about wine. I'm pretty monomaniacal in my interests. I wake up in the middle of the night dreaming of questions of the timing of malolactic fermentation and things like that, or the best way to press Chardonnay. So it suits me very well just to write about wine and to go into as much depth as possible. And I'm lucky to be operating in a publication where that's expected and, and desired, and that's what the readers look for. So, but even I think when I was writing for Decanter, while my pieces were perhaps a little bit more sort of evocative, they remain remain very wine-focused. Um, I don't know, I think we'll see, and, and are seeing, is more and more small niches in this sort of media ecosystem, some of which, and everybody says subscription media is dead. Well, that's not the case for us at all. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't talk about numbers and things because I think I'd be sued or, or fired or something like that. But it's all, you know, it's pretty rosy. So it's not at all this sort of doom and gloom scenario of people won't pay for content. People will pay for content. You just have to produce the content that people want. I'm very happy not to be sort of doing lifestyle stuff particularly. I mean, a lot, all of that stuff ends up being then funded by tourism boards. <laughs> you know, I'd again, you may have to cut that out saying that, but that's, that's, how, that's the reality of it. It might be hard to be good at both, right? Because they, they're servicing potentially different groups. Yeah, and I think it's also generational. I mean, the demographic of the wine spectator that sort of imagines retiring to Tuscany and drinking, <laughs> you know, and drinking Mazzetto with seafood pasta 
I mean, that, that's not the future. It's a very lucrative niche today, and, that, and that's great. And, and you know, everybody should have the product that they want, uh, and that's capitalism. But I don't think that the future of even lifestyle writing is going to hopefully evolve towards something that's a bit more, you know, a bit more grounded in, in reality rather than sort of the sort of fantasies of baby boomers. Nothing again, nothing against baby boomers. But. but do you feel because of your focus on just wines and not having to do the other side of the job that you can get a depth that maybe other publications can't get and when you're doing your critiques? and Because I've seen you do like going retrospective vintages and like just diving into like 1980s Burgundy, right? And like kind of like really doing a retrospective of how is that showing now? And so like, that gives you that time to do that because you only have so many hours in the day. Exactly. It's a huge luxury. I mean, I review 5,000 wines a year or so, but I choose exactly which wines I review, where, when. If I want to do, as, as you allude to, the horizontal of the 1980 Burgundy Vintage Age 40, I can do that and I can publish it whenever I want. So it's, that, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I love my job. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, I would say, unfortunately, there are not many like it in the, in the wine world today. And many of them are occupied by people who've been doing them for 30, 40 years also. You don't have many fresh voices in, in the wine world today, especially people who actually pay enough to live. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a real problem, right? Well, yeah. And there, there is a very vastly changing landscape. And you talk about content and having the right content that people want. But there seems to be a, a plethora and a growing amount of content being created out there, especially with Parker retiring and there almost being lots of offshoots or children coming off of that, like Galoni with Venice and Jeb Dunnick and Suckling out of the Spectator and countless number of people who are professional critics who are independent. And then the rise of social media and even consumer aggregated or consumer created wine, if you want to call it criticism, or at least ratings, right? Like through Vivino and Seller Tracker and all that sort of thing. And the numerous number of influencers who, as, as you mentioned, don't make enough money really from doing that to have a living. So how do you see all those things impacting the traditional wine critic landscape? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. You, you see quite often articles that say there could never be another Robert Parker, and everyone sort of nods along and I don't know, it's not an aspiration I have for myself because my aspiration is to write about wine until I've said everything I have to say and then stop. And that may be relatively soon. I make no promises. So I certainly don't envisage retiring age 71 for the first time. But I really think that if there isn't, hasn't been a successor to Parker, an obvious successor to Parker, and without risking to disparage any of the candidates, some of it has to do with a lack of sort of personal charisma, a lack of persuasion. I mean, there was some, there's something, Parker's not a great prose stylist, I don't think he'd have any pretensions to be, but he communicated enthusiasm gloriously. And I think we can all learn from that. But to communicate enthusiasm, you have to feel it. I think there are a reasonable number of voices in the wine world who are somewhat sort of phoning it in, honestly. And you know, we all have to pay mortgages and pay tuition and pay for things and live. And it's a job. But uh, I think anyone who thought they were going to get rich out of wine criticism going into it was naive. And my, my colleague Luis Gutierrez likes to say there are two sorts of wine writers, that people who buy wine and people who don't. And I think it's a, it's a pretty good acid test. And there are quite a lot of wine writers who don't buy wine. So I don't know. I wonder, I wonder whether after this sort of moment of diversification, it's almost sort of post-Roman Empire sort of phenomenon, what will emerge? Potentially something similarly hegemonic and influential as Parker was in his day. And why not, frankly, um, why not somebody from China who can actually afford to drink DRC every week? 
Does it have to be an occidental voice? Not necessarily. We know that it's a real moment of flux. Um, I think we all have to maybe try a little bit harder instead of instead of wringing our hands. I think you're going to see some of the people in the sort of blogosphere go mainstream too, because yeah, I mean, look at the, if you. I won't give away everybody's birthday, but there are a lot of people coming up for retirement age in the, in the wine world. There. A lot of people and a lot of things like newspaper columns, even, even quite lucrative stuff uh, that have been tied up for a long time are going to be vacated. And where do you look? Because there hasn't been any route to monetization for anyone who wasn't writing something like that. The, the people who had the passion are writing about it for free on social media. And I think some of those people are going to be sort of co-opted and, and hired. The boundaries are going to be blurred, clearly. You know, I mean, a, I was only you know, I was writing for Decanter, which is not doesn't have a huge reach. I was posting stuff about wine on Instagram, and then I'm writing for the Wine Advocate. So you're not professional until you're professional, right? So it's an interesting it's an interesting moment. I'm excited to see ten years where the, how the dust has settled. Touching on Robert Parker's style, one of the things, even though I don't think he, his prose was that great, I do think he was a clear communicator. But the other thing I got to give him credit for, he was very critical, and he wasn't afraid to say this wine isn't good or isn't up to par or is far below expectations. I, do you feel like people have, with, with him going away, with him retiring, do you feel like that part has been lost on the next wave of people writing wine reviews? It feels like everybody's kind of softened the edge of actual true criticism. I mean, wine's one of those few things where people sometimes don't feel like they can say what they really think about the wine. No, I do people pull their punches more in contemporary wine writing than they did 20 years ago? Yes. Does that get back to the extraordinary price of wine on the one hand? Yes. Also to the fact, I think that back in the day, you publish something in Moncton print, mail it around the US. I mean, it takes two years to get to, for anybody in Italy to find out what you said or to find out that you said that he looked like Brad Pitt or like a mountain goat or whatever. Sometimes even Barker wrote some quite, yeah, he called uh, Jacques Renault, he said he re- re- resembled Yoda in Star Trek, things like that. <laughs> so, you know, you can't really do that sort of thing anymore because they see what you wrote about them. But I mean, I don't know, I gave 55 points to a, to a Grand Cru from Domaine Lefebvre, which is endemically Primox, 2006 Valium Orange. I, I haven't found out if I'm banned at Lefebvre yet, we'll see. But, you know, if not, I'll just buy the wine, so it's fine. I think that's, that we're still, those of us who have the luxury of a decent salary, I think have, a, in fact, a responsibility incumbent upon us to, to be critical. I tend to agree with you, honestly, that we could do better at that. Yeah, it is much easier to take, I think, for everybody the path of least resistance. Also, there are, there are fewer wines that are outright flawed that make it into sort of mainstream shelves. And what do you do if you say, I really, I hate this wine? Do you hate it badly enough to give it 75 points and you don't really create a ruckus? I mean, just because it's a style you don't particularly like. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, it's, it's, if you look at the way in which points are officially apportioned in the 100-point scale, and to get into a really low score, you really have to have flaws. It's about objectively measured things. And there are a lot of boring wines in the world today that I have no interest in drinking, but how, well, how do you score a boring wine? That's a big conundrum, in fact, that I encounter on a regular basis. I can encounter totally uninteresting wines with no faults. I mean, it's just very difficult. Is it 88? Is it 87? Is it, is it 85? I mean, to me, if it does nothing for you, what, what's it worth, you know? So I didn't even a, know the scale went down to 55. <laughs> but <laughs> no, no, well, I, I gave the five points to acknowledge that it's actually wine. <laughs> Water starts at 50. Water, like yeah. if it's ever, yeah, exactly. maybe it's wine. <laughs> no, but I thought also, I thought it was also important to demonstrate that, that we're still prepared to do that. And it is, if you go and buy, it costs you 500 
plus bucks to buy a bottle of 06 Lefebvre Chevalier wherever in the world you buy it, you have a 9 in 10 chance that the bottle's off. So what do you score it? I, I felt it was actually appropriate in that instance to really... That's, we're talking about real flaws due to technical mistakes in the way that it was made, in my view. And I wonder if that almost perspective and independence impacts where the wine advocate plays in this new critical landscape versus everyone else. How do you see the wine advocate positioning itself relative to all the other critics and everything else? I think on the one hand, we're a very important lubricant to the to the wine business in general. You need scores to sell wine. This is a reality that I think a lot of consumers don't understand. So in a sense, the wine advocate has become something a bit like standard and pause for the wine world, sort of independent betting mechanism for wine quality, at least to give a perspective on wine quality. Is that the most charismatic thing? I mean, do you ask someone from Standard & Poor's for a restaurant recommendation? Not necessarily, you know, so so that I think there has to be, and this is one of the things Parker did very well. I think you saw Parker having these crazy dinners where he opened all the 82 first growths and at vast quantities of red meat and things like that. There's an aspirational component to it. This gets back to my point about there was a charisma to it, whether you were into it or not, and it was divisive. Some people hated it, but a lot of people thought, wow, this guy is really living the good life, and he's drinking all the good wines that he writes about, and there's something, there's something we aspire to. That was, I think, an aspect of the attraction that he exercised over so many people for such a long time. So do we recapture some of that? I certainly, I like to think people who are interested in Burgundy would think that I have a pretty fun time of it, uh, and drink pretty well, and eat pretty well. That's certainly my principal interest. What else can we do? I mean, we just started, we introduced a filter for wines that are organic and things like that. So we try to remain somewhat innovative. We have this big database, we have a big institutional advantage. But what's the next step beyond that? I mean, that's probably something that I should keep in the internal discussions with my colleagues rather than uh, being too <laughs> indiscreet about it. But and you, so you just mentioned this, the green emblem or this sort of organic green filter, as you called it, but it, it almost seems more like a a stamp or a certification that the wine advocate is putting out there. Can you tell us about that and what was the strategic rationale for launching that? Sure. I mean, I think pretty much behind all the decisions we're making or should be making is what do our consumers want and how better can we serve them, which I think is, is a perspective that we should aspire to retain. Absolutely. That was certainly what Parker made a big point about. So a lot of people are interested in whether wines are made from organically farmed grapes. Biodynamics is another dimension of that, a more contentious dimension of that. So we simply decided to put a filter into our database so that each wine that we enter, we tell us from now on if it is certified organic will be denoted as such and people will see that, can also search for that within our database if they wish to. In addition to that, slightly confusingly, we also decided to, recognizing that there are some producers who go well beyond certification and some producers that are not certified that go well beyond most people who are certified or, or indeed any of them, we decided to nominate Producers that we know, having visited the vineyards and visiting the vineyards regularly, work in a very exemplary manner, whether because they're pioneers or because they do particularly innovative things or whatever. So that is a sort of an award that we, we give out to a very small number of wineries, not remotely intended to be comprehensive. But shouldn't confuse the two. The first is simply we're adding a qualification in our database for wines that are certified, either organic or biodynamic. And the other is to recognize best practice annually, small number of wineries. I'm, you know, I'm pleased to see it. I mean, for me, a real interest in my work is the sort of agronomic side of winemaking. You know, I do to believe that farming is decisive for the final quality of the wine and improves the taste to farm very well. Part of that is a sustainability thing, but a lot of it is just to do with wine quality. The better you farm, 
the better your wine. So the, for me, that's very important. And obviously, we've come at it more from a sustainability angle in the way it's been presented, but, but I'm very happy about it because I see it as also very much a positive thing for wine quality. And is that something that you think that is driven by what your subscribership is looking for? Is that there's a new expressed interest or are a more vocal interest on agricultural standards and how, how green something is, and that's why it was done? Or is it something that you guys just think is the right thing to do? No, I think people are definitely interested in it. We had a few questions about it. We had questions about it also from producers. You know, what are you doing to recognize this aspect of our work? Well, we're not going to give people higher scores for being organic, but we could at least tell people, tell the consumers. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's obviously it's a tendency of the times is to take more of an interest in that sort of thing. I think even five years ago, it was quite common. You'd see a picture, a promotional picture of a winery or a vineyard, and the vineyard has clearly been treated with um, herbicides. Uh, and you don't see that sort of thing so much. And you still, you somebody posts a picture standing in a vineyard, which has obviously been round up, and now people will comment, say, you do realize that that's pretty revolting from an you know, ecological perspective. Uh, and so on. So clearly people are more aware. And I think it, it's, it's, nice, you know, it's nice to be doing, to be the first to do something. I believe we're the first wine publication to take this initiative. And, and I think that's good. It shows old dogs can learn new tricks. <laughs> and you mentioned the institutional backing of the Wine Advocate. It's, it's now owned by Michelin. How does that impact the Wine Advocate's role in wine criticism or what it does? I mean, you know, it's been a great boon to me. I mean, we have a very established position. People know who we are. We have, what, 500,000 reviews in the database, something, something obscene like that. And if I want to make an appointment at a winery and I write to people, people know who I'm working for and, and tend to say yes. So, so it's an immense advantage in that respect. It's very easy when something like that has been established and, and is rolling, it's very easy to, I think, perpetuate it and to continue. You know, It's almost like an empty vessel, I think, the, the name of the wine advocate. And if you put great work into it, you get a great deal of attraction in just a couple of years. I was very pleased with how my work is being received at the moment, but I'm under no illusions that, that that's thanks to the position that I have and to the work that went before. So it's really also suddenly been the best school for understanding all the complexities of Robert Parker's legacy that I could have had, because it's a very it's a contentious figure in the wine world, especially especially often caricatured, sometimes unfairly, uh, and sometimes criticized rightly. Uh, but suddenly working for the wine has been very illuminating for me and really sort of plumbing all the different dimensions of how he impacted the wine world, that's for sure. So in the past, when I would look up reviews, I definitely was a little bit more discerning on if Robert Parker was writing something about Bordeaux, you know, I definitely paid attention to what he was saying, but on Burgundy, I kind of ignored it. And so I'm curious from your perspective, does it really matter who is giving the review? In the past, it was Parker slash Wine Advocate or Wine Spectator as a group. But it seems now like there's a lot more weight on who the individual is writing. And also some of these people rotate into different publications as well. And so I'm curious on that personal brand versus the larger kind of publication brand. How do you, how do you see that landscape up at the moment? Oh, well, the cynical point of view on this is the sort of typical wine retailer's point of view, which is just to quote the highest score for every given wine. And you know, I still sometimes get copy and paste offers emailed to me where if Alan Meadows has given one wine out of the five the highest score, he, it's him, then it's Jasper Morris, then it's Neil Martin, then it's me, depending on who's the most generous for that particular wine within the range, which is obviously a very meretricious and cynical <laughs> attitude to the whole thing. But in fact, I, I've been encouraged. I mean, I, I follow to some extent the reception of my work and I follow the wine market and one gets a sense of, of the extent to which one influences things and so on. 
And I've been encouraged. I think consumers are more intelligent than they're given credit for. And they can tell the difference between James Suckling and John Gilman. If they're about to start spending a couple of thousand dollars on a bottle of wine or a case of wine, they tend to go into more detail than people <laughs> necessarily assume. So I've been enheartened by that. People do seem to take notice of who it's from, how it's written, I think, also how it's communicated. Does the tasting note just actually meaningfully describe the wine in a way that is in any respect relatable, tells you about its its structure, its potential. So I thought, yeah, I, I probably three years ago would have, would have been a bit, a bit more downbeat answering that question. And today, I th- for me, I think it's a, it's an alloyed positive if consumers care who wrote the review. That's my a priori here. So I think that what I've seen has been very much positive in that regard. I think people do people do care. So I follow you personally as well as the wine advocate, and I see a lot of your content. Whether it's and I've seen you really kind of really go into the during the pandemic go into the social media side and like make some really great videos anywhere from talking about Beaujolais. Um, misconceptions on carbonic maceration and some setting of some truth there to other issues. And it, I thought it was great that you kind of took this like slightly longer form video content. You have like little setup at your house. So I'm curious on the balance between that and then also the wine advocate work, because sometimes I see your stuff on your profile first, and then eventually gets morphed over into the wine advocate. <laughs> it seems like there's a there's an encouragement or a blending of the two. And it's not really a personal versus wine advocate. It's kind of a sharing. I think we've all been encouraged to go out and do our thing and then the wine advocate will will take the things that stick. And for me it's been exciting. I mean I, I was sort of we were sort of stuck at home in France during the pandemic and I thought well, I've been thinking about doing it and finally this gave me the impetus to not procrastinate and go and visit a producer and taste some wines actually and see what can be done. And I think there's a lot more. I mean there's a lot more to be done this harvest I wanted to do videos of every stage of the winemaking process in Burgundy. We talk about presses, making white Burgundy. I don't know if this is something you've gone into, but whether it's a Vaslan press, mechanical press, or a basket press, or a pneumatic press, well, let's actually go with a camera inside a press and say, look, I'm inside a, a pneumatic press, and it's not very pleasant, and so on. And this is, uh, this is how it works, different to this other kind of press. And just a five-minute video, you can explain the entire subject so much more clearly than trying to, trying to do that in writing. So it's been great, and I, and I think people like to see it. I certainly, I try to, I at least try to make the kind of videos I might watch. I don't watch a huge amount of, of video content myself, so I'm, I, I think that's a good filter. No, it's, it's been exciting, but I, I, yeah, I mean, I hope that we'll look as a company at what works in that regard and try to maximize it. Some of that style of my videos wouldn't really work for some of my colleagues and vice versa. And also it's, it's given away. All of that information is given away. So saying to a CEO, well, we should just give away lots of stuff. That's a hard proposition, particularly if the CEO has an accounting background. It can be a hard sell. <laughs> I personally think it, it could be good for the brand to give more stuff away, in a sense. Sounds like it could be TikTok videos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TikTok Pujash. I'm, sure I, I, I'm not sure my physique is TikTok ready just yet, but, uh, but I'm certainly trying to work on it. Go from five minutes to 90 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Six seconds. You, you could do a sea shanty on uh, yeah. Burgundy. Of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or James Suckling impersonations. There you go. <laughs> so getting a 100-point Robert Parker score used to cement a brand and a brand's legacy 20 years ago. Do you think critic reviews still have that same power to sell wine and, and build brands? Yeah, that's a really good question. And again, uh, similar to the question about whether reviewers are followed individually or whether people just care about numbers, my answer three, four years ago would have been more cynical and less uh, positive than it is today. In fact, I think 
certainly my experience with Champagne and also with the sort of peripheral regions of Burgundy, peripheral to the Côte d'Or, that is, has been very illuminating in this regard because obviously I'm not going to go in and create Armand Rousseau out of nothing. And, and even if I decide that I hate Rousseau and, and want to destroy it, it's not going to work. The Côte d'Or and the top estates of the Côte de Nuit and Côte de Beaune are pretty much immune to the influence of wine critics. But where I've really seen, and I think the positive side of it is in Champagne with growers. I mean, I believe passionately that the best grower champagnes are as good as, better than, in many cases, the top Grand Marc Champagne, there's better farming, there's more attention to winemaking. I mean, it's not, it's not surprising. And if they have some good vineyards to work with, with good vine genetics, they should be making better wines, honestly, or as good. So that's been great. I mean, and I had, a, I had an interesting conversation with Cedric Bouchard, which I maybe relate to, to illustrate what I'm talking about here. And what, what does 100 point, giving 100 points to somebody mean? We often hear about the bad sides of scores, scoring, it inflates, them, inflames the market, uh, it creates hype, and so on. We, we, those arguments we've all heard ad nausea. But what I was trying to do, I gave one of his wines a 2008 yeah, 100 points. Uh, and I wanted to signal that there is no glass ceiling in how champagne is reviewed. You can be a village no one's heard of. You can be 100% Blanc de Noir because 50 years ago, Blanc de Noir, I mean, people weren't making Blanc de Noir. Huh? You can be a young guy, not at all an established producer, and have this sort of recognition on a, on a global level. And he had understood all of that. that I, we discussed it. I explained that was whatever. In addition to everything that the wine is, because it's an incredible wine, of course, that has to be first and foremost. That's the point. But it also sends a message. And he said, you know, on top of that, it was very important for me because back in 2008, my dad's friends, even my dad was saying, oh, your vineyards are a mess. You need to apply herbicides. You're not making the maximum yield. You're not fair le rendement in French. Make the yield. It has no pejorative connotations. It's an obligation. It's a right. You should make the yield the maximum, in Champagne especially. And they were laughing at me and so on. And so the fact that you gave it to that, wine particularly was like the final recognition that I wasn't a lunatic as the neighbor said that I was. And so that for me, that was rather touching even. And I was very, very delighted to be able to give him that recognition. I, I served his wines at my wedding. I've followed them for a very long time. So it was a very, the wines I absolutely believe in wholeheartedly. Was that sort of the good side of it? And I think even for him, I don't know, Cedric Rochelle was already kind of hard to buy, but there are other producers, smaller producers, or even someone like Aigley, Egli has done this body of work of 35 years, Egliuria, and it was, it was well known, but I think people always, oh, yeah, but it's still a grower. And giving them 100 points seems to have kicked everything up to another level, just in terms of how the wines are perceived. I mean, they did, they told me they did a third more business every year since. So it's still economically impactful also. And I hope that this then shows that the other big thing is to say to young producers that starting out, you can get this kind of recognition. And in that sense, that's a good side of the 100-point system. It's that it's a disruptor of traditional hierarchies. You can be a crew bourgeois and get 100 points. It doesn't happen very often these days. You can be a grower champagne and you can get 100 points, I can tell you, because, uh, because I'm in charge of it. Uh, and, uh, and the same, you know, in the Coachellanes, you're not going to be limited if you're in Mercury to only get 91 points as your maximum score. So it should be about that. It should be about testing the traditional hierarchies, appellation hierarchies, classification hierarchies, and pushing them. And in that sense, I think it's particularly positive as a force in the world of French wine. You know, obviously, California doesn't have these sorts of classifications and hierarchies. The only sort of hierarchy is prized much like Bordeaux 300 years ago, in fact, of course. Uh, and it's not been cemented yet. So it's less of a disruptor, I think, in new world regions. It's just sort of, it's the only standard. And I think it works best, in fact, when it's in tension with 
with hierarchies, reputations, established history, and when it can can disrupt. It's interesting that, yeah, that is a disruptor of traditional hierarchies that may have been established hundreds of years ago. I think for the last maybe 20 or 40 years or so of the wine world, it has been become almost a new tradition that getting a top score, 100 points or something, was the pathway to cement yourself as a brand. Do you still see that today, or do you think that there's a different pathway or pathways to becoming an iconic brand in the world of wine today? Yeah, I, I clearly, I think a lot of these things are now market-driven. Something like Bezo. Bezo never got 100 points. And Bezo, to get Bezo for less than $3,500 a bottle these days is pretty tricky affair. Three hectares in, in the Cote de Nuit, seldom even reviewed by anyone. I, I've been a couple of times, but he's, he's a complicated guy and he has, he has his own point of view and, and it's fair enough. So no, and then people like Arno Ant. I mean, Arno Ant never really got particularly high scores because, of course, he only has a bit of Premier Cru, but mainly village-level wines. And a lot of scoring of Burgundy historically was if you only had a Premier Cru, you'd never get as good a score as a Grand Cru and so on, which is absolutely the opposite of what I attempt to do. These are sort of cult producers today. So no, you, you need the right sort of confluence of market dynamics, you know. But I think it depends on the region. Burgundy is very, very hot right now. There are a few other places like that. But if you want to, it really depends. It really depends. And also, we've, this game has been played a long time now. Chateau Latour has had many 100-point scores now, not just there's no, a very few producers and regions. Is it a question of this like your first time? Yeah, it was at a uh, talk from Philippe Gigal, and he said, We don't do marketing. <laughs> but he has 23 or plus 100-point scores. Right. Right? I don't know why I have a get over the last 20 years. So it's. Yeah. It's a different type of marketing, right? And that, I mean, if we were to go on a little diversion there, we would say that this is one of the other problems with wine criticism today is essentially a lot of wineries have outsourced their marketing to the wine press. And the wine press don't sell the wines, so not remunerated. This is one of the big business model problems for anyone in this ecosystem. And thankfully, we have a lot of subscribers, and it's, and it's, it's great. But I really feel for anybody trying to set something up from scratch, or especially if they want to have a lot of colleagues and so on, I mean, it, it's, it's a definitely, um, there's a tension there. There's attention there because we, we sell the wine, but we don't get a stake in the profit. So. And you mentioned a little bit that retailers will put the highest score out there, which makes sense from their perspective. They're trying to sell the wine. Do you think that has led, especially with the proliferation of critics that we've talked about, do you think that has led to some level of score inflation amongst certain critics or publications? I mean, I think, well, let's... Has there been inflation? Yes, there has been. There has. There clearly has been inflation globally in in the business. Has there also been score compression? Now that to me is much more of a problem. It doesn't really matter what number you you give it. If your scale stops at uh, seventy five and you score everything between fifty and seventy five, as long as it's differentiated, as long as the good stuff is at the top and the bad stuff's at the bottom, that's the key. And I think the trade and the consumers, frankly, have to bear some share of the blame of the situation that we're in, which is that if a wine does not get 90 points, at least, people don't want to buy it. So what do I do? My job as a critic is to communicate advice as to whether to buy the wine, to try to give some sort of metric of my enthusiasm, like, should you buy this wine? And it's the question that is being asked by somebody reading every review, right? That's what I have in my mind. People are that's the expectation. So you need to describe the product and give some indication of whether they should buy it or not. And if you think it's great and you give it 85 and no one will buy it. So have you really communicated what you were intending to communicate? So this is a problem. I mean, I didn't 
I came to this business only from 2015 onwards. I don't really feel responsible for the situation it's in because I didn't put it there. And I take things as I find them and review the wines. And I, and I hope people understand what, what I'm trying to get across in my reviews while also differentiating. So I'm not afraid. I do give out hundreds, not profligately, maybe, I don't know, 10 a year, something like that. And I, I don't keep track, but it tends to work out like that. So I'd say I was one of the more conservative reviewers, but there are some reviewers who will never give 100, so they give up to 99. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but to me, it's not really a philosophical position. I spent a lot of time at Oxford reading philosophical stuff and going into very third-order debates about abstract subjects, and that doesn't particularly interest me. I just pragmatically communicate as best I can. But you don't want to give out so many hundreds that it doesn't mean anything, and so on. And this, the real tension to me is not so much infl- score inflation, which, yes, there, there's a gratuitous number of hundreds given by many people writing about wine, if a hundred is indeed intended to denote some sort of profoundly emotional, moving experience in wine, which does not happen every day, let's face it, even in great wine regions, great wine vintages. But the real problem to me is this problem of, infl- of compression of scores, which it would be disingenuous to deny as a problem, which for me is honestly as much to do with the way the market operates and the way consumers buy wine as it is to do with writers, because we're just trying to communicate. So I am curious on, you mentioned the compression and giving 100 points about, and, and you're one of the few people, you're, you're someone who actually tastes older vintages quite often from what I can see. And I'm quite jealous of <laughs> what you drink. <laughs> but uh, but I'm curious on the 100 points is that when you give something 100 points, that concept of it is, is it like right here, right now, it gives you that perfect bottle of wine or is it about potential? And that's, it's always an interesting thing because I've always rubbed me the wrong way a little bit when people would do, especially Bordeaux on premier tastings and they're giving it a range, which helps give you like a way out, but it's, but they're assessing what it could be. And it's not even, it's not even, the wine's not even done yet, right? It still has to go through more oh, yeah. and, Very early, and yeah. so I'm curious on when you give a score, is it like right here, right now, or is it potential and how do you evaluate potential? You know, I think rather than, you know, people sometimes talk about perfect scores and I've always tried to shy away from that. I think I have made the mistake of using the expression once or twice in, in writing. But I tend to think of it as that's where the scale stops. So the very best wines, really the very best wines belong at the top. And you want to give it so infrequently that it is extremely meaningful when you do give it. And beyond that, philosophical discussions of perfection, uh, that way we can avoid getting into that sort of thing, which I think is for everybody's benefit, because it's, it's not a very interesting subject, in fact, like most of philosophy, arguably. But what does it mean? I don't know. I've given it to some young wines, but very seldom, and, and really to wines that just have this sort of ineffable sense of completeness, extraordinary nuance, complexity, depth, intensity of flavor. I don't know. I mean, I only, I only give it to a young wine when, I, when there's sort of, in my mind, no reasonable doubt. And there's maybe one, or, I would say there's one or two. Well, there's only one. There's one 100-point score that I've given them. Given a blind tasting. Nobody normally gives 100-point scores in blind tastings. You might not give it to the right producer. But I did, and, and I didn't give it to the right producer, to my mind, in fact. It was more because I retasted the wine a couple of years later, and I was disappointed. I drank a bottle of it, and it didn't do the things for me that it had. So, But other than that, I mean, I try to drink the wines. I give 100 points as often as I can. And some of the lower wines, it's a bit tricky to drink those very often. But uh, And some of them not even been released. So but even lower, I'd find ways, end up drinking it occasionally. And, and ten, I, that's it. I mean, I, I think those sorts of wines, the, the feedback mechanism has to be that then the reviewer buys some bottles and tastes them again. And I want to be the first person to be disappointed when I make a mistake. Because it's, as you say, it's a bit of an abstraction to try to anticipate the evolution of a wine that really is intended to be drunk at age 40. 
that's third order stuff. Right, and so that flavor that you gave a 55 to, like, upon release, that could have been gorgeous. It could, it could. It could. I think it was yeah, probably it a little oxidized right. release, but... So, segueing into, like, I'm curious on how you see bloggers and or social media influencers play a role in the wine critic landscape. Is it just more voices, or, or is it something that's a threat to the business? Oh, I don't. I think that businesses that are not providing the best product deserve to be outcompeted and, and destroyed and replaced. So, a threat, maybe you know, let's say a threat in a positive sense. I think we need to be pushed to do more. A lot of people working on social media do a better job than the people who have the luxury of extremely well-paid, essentially tenured positions, as they would be in academia. And we need to be inspired by that. You know, if you have bloggers going around vineyards and talking about viticulture and explaining stuff to people that we're not writing about, then what are we doing? So I haven't found too much of that in Burgundy happily. So it's, I, I don't feel too much pressure, but there are definitely regions where they're, which are a bit more accessible, things are a bit more opaque, where there are some people doing some really good, good work on social media. So I think it's, uh, I think it's a good thing. And I think maybe if there's an issue, it could be sort of, to some extent, perhaps declaring some of the potential conflicts of interest, because you know, this goes back to this problem of how expensive wines are and how do you get to be in a position to pontificate about very expensive wines without compromising yourself or at least your independence. So maybe there's. Do you some, think that's transparent um, with with publications, though? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends. I think we're. I mean, we're. I like to think that Wine Advocate is is very transparent about about not having, I mean, hopefully not having conflicts of interest. It's a tricky, you can interpret conflict of interest incredibly broadly and go and say, well, as a critic, you shouldn't buy wines that you were going to score highly before you score them and things like that. I mean, it's a conflict of interest if I just bought some wines that I'm going to give a high score to in a forthcoming issue. But if you really think about it like that, I tend to think of it, the flip side is that it's great for me to be exposed to the consequences of my mistakes. I have a consumer perspective. But you, you mean, you can take, you should I even... I'm sending my daughter to school in Bone. You know, there's some other wine producers' kids go to the school in Bone. So is that a conflict of interest? It becomes sort of crazy. You can scrutinize everything. Should you eat at a restaurant by the cousin of a wine producer? If they give you a dessert on the house, you know, what's going on? But the real big, I think the big stuff is when someone's getting a check to say something. And that is something that should be absolutely disclosed. And, and people should sometimes, I think, focus more on those sorts of things than, than the sort of aesthetic conflicts of interest, you could call them, almost. So what about all that user-generated content, like Seller Tracker, Vivino, some maybe even like Wine Berserkers, and their impact on what the wine collectible landscape, but also the wine critic landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think the big vector in current wine market is, on the one hand, Instagram. Just in, in terms of talking about what moves the market, Instagram and WeChat. I don't know how into Chinese social media you, you are. I had the disconcerting experience the other day of watching a video on WeChat where, and I don't speak Mandarin, but somebody was giving a, a survey of contemporary wine criticism of Burgundy, and it was like a lot of Mandarin and William Kelly. And apparently they said good things, so it's great. You know, I'm, del- I'm delighted, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it's very peculiar. No, so I think that I think you see, you know, you see the same sorts of stuff being drunk by this same sorts of people on Instagram and this is clearly influences the market. You can also see, you know, I see sometimes I start writing about something and then six months later you start seeing bottles of that thing. So you can feed into this. And so we're we're not these are not separate ecosystems. This is one big ecosystem with different ponds. I think that's that's a big absolutely a big thing. I don't know. I mean, it's what was the other part of the question? You you had said something else that was very interesting in in this regard. I think user generated content. Oh yeah, like, yeah, the seller trigger stuff and all of that. 
Yeah, on, on wine forums. I mean, I think that remains a bit of an, a niche. I think it would be a mistake. Sometimes you see a thread on wine berserkers and it's, we all hate eggs or we love why. But that really doesn't move the needle of the wine market. So it's, it's a lot of people in the wine industry read it. And I think it, it shapes maybe wine discourse to a certain extent. It also it, it creates the impression that there are hundreds of thousands of people who think a particular thing, when in fact it's sort of five guys posting one after the other. So that's I think that's a particularly sort of Anglophone wine world niche that maybe isn't as, as impactful as it should. I, I enjoy participating there because it's an opportunity to actually interact with real end users of the product that we create. And I'm always open to hearing the other side of someone else's opinion or think it's very healthy. I, I regard a, no wine tasting note is definitive and I, it's always open to review. I'm always interested to hear what other people think. I have my own strong opinions and I consider them before I publish them, absolutely. But I don't shut myself off and, and it's great to have an opportunity to really interact with real people and not just sort of be publishing you know, 89 into the, like I feel sometimes a bit like a bingo, <laughs> bingo card uh, <laughs> caller just calling out numbers into the abstract, you know, <laughs> into space. <laughs> so it's, I find it's, it's a positive thing, but I don't know that it's huge in terms of shaping the future of, of, the, of the wine market or trends or anything like that. Give us that illusion. Having talked to a number of retailers, I know that they, or even Psalms, where they would say, hey, well, someone's like looking up their wines on Vivino while they're, while they're looking through their wine list or in their store and they're a little annoyed. They're like, just ask me and I can help you. I promise I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to find a wine you like. You don't need to use an app. I'm right here. Yeah, I mean, um, Vivino and that sort of thing, I have to say, you know, having been predominantly positive about also, Cellar Tracker, which I think is is fun, and it's nice to see what recent data points that no professional critic could could produce in such abundance. Things like Vino, I confess, I, I sort of would I secretly despise or publicly despise. It's just it's just nonsense generated by it. I mean, it's like the average of a thousand people's opinions is no opinion. Or, or that yeah, it's smooth. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's smooth. Naomi is smooth. Thanks, Vino. I just feel so singularly unthreatened by Vivino writing about Burgundy also. I mean, I don't know, maybe if I was like, writing about $30 Tuscan wines, it would be like, wow, I'll get off my lawn. But I just sort of feel with disinterested neglect. I don't even have, I don't have the app. Yeah, I mean, Cell Tracker does a good job of giving up-to-date reviews, like so people's yeah. opinions, right? That it's a little more real-time. Plus, the algorithm of Vivino can't cope with Burgundy. Kim Kardashian broke the internet, but Burgundy labels broke Vivino because you put it <laughs> in and it's like it's the Griot Chambertin from Ponceau and it comes out as like Moria Village or something. It's like, wow, okay. Good work, guys. <laughs> and we're going to move towards a cashless economy. That's the next step. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> I hope this all works out. <laughs> So William, in wrapping up this episode, we do appreciate your time. I am curious if you had to like, if you had to list one thing that you're most excited about for the wine industry in 2021, what would it be? Yeah, I'm very excited to see the extent to which consumers are interested in where wines come from and how they are made, because that is the foundation of what we do. We historically as an industry have talked a lot in the abstract about terroir and then a lot about how wines taste, but there are two steps between them. They are viticulture and vinification. And so so I think it's fascinating to see. Those are things I enjoy talking about, so very self-interestedly, I am excited to see people taking a, a real interest in those those important subjects, whether it be the quality of the farming, whether it's sustainable or not, or, or, or all manner of things. To me, that's a very positive trend, you know, beyond a deeper trend, all of the, the rather ephemeral ones about whether it's going to be 
which category of wine will explode or, or will, will hard seltzer destroy wine in the market or all of these sort of things or will is Allegate the next big thing all of these sort of ephemera that we hear a lot about the big one is people just getting more interested in the process from step one to, to the end great well thank you very much thank you Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.